This is my first year in a finance role at a small nonprofit. Besides closing the books, is there anything else I need to get done before year end from a finance perspective? Yes, there are. There's a bunch of things you need to do at the end of the year. So one of the sort of the big things that you need, you should probably, I mean, if you're a finance professional, you probably know what most of them are. I'm going to concentrate on the sort of nonprofit specific things because the, you know, as a finance person, like you don't need to tell me what an accounting, you don't need me to tell you what an accounting textbook is going to tell you about how to close a year. Um, so the big thing that you're going to want to do is make sure that you're prepared for your audit. So make sure that everything is in place so that when the auditors arrive, that that everything is clean, that you understand it, that the reports that you're going to give them are accurate. Um, and that is usually kind of involved what we call that in the accounting universe is an account analysis where we'll go through every single account one at a time and make sure it has all the transactions in it that we think that are supposed to be in it. Um, and then it's not missing anything. So like it's if you know, if you're not a finance person, it's pretty easy to think about like you should have. 12 electric bills. <laughs> like if you don't have 12 electric bills in the account, you need to figure out where the other one went. It's probably just got misposted or, oh gosh, we forgot April. We should probably pay that. Right. So, so finding all that things and all those things and making sure that you've done all those things, that's probably the biggest thing is just a big account analysis. The other thing you're going to want to do is make sure all of your, your specific schedules that you need to have done are done. The big one is the CIFA, which is the statement of expenditures of federal awards or something. I think that's what it means. It's it's the report that sort of shows all of the money that you got from a federal source um, and where you spent that money. Uh, and it's used, it, it, one of the things it's used for is to determine whether or not you spend enough money to be eligible for the federal single audit, like if that's going to get triggered. And that's a nice high number. So you don't need to, most folks don't need to re re worry about that just yet. Um, but you might need to do that, but you need to have the CIFA done anyway. Um, you also want to make sure all your restrictions are right. So one, when donors give you money and they say that it's to be used for a particular purpose, you have to go through the process of making sure that you have some sort of schedule that explains this is the restricted money that came in. This is how we released those restrictions. And this is how much is left over to be to be put into the to be kept in the the net assets with donor restrictions account, which is what it's called now. Um, and then there's a bunch of other little cleanup things you need to do too. You might need to, if you've got pledges or, or donations that you haven't received yet or grants that haven't been received yet, you may need to actually post a, a discount for the time value of money because you're not expecting to receive this $10,000 for five years. And it's going to be worth less in five years than it is today because of inflation. So those kinds of things you need to do, you're going to look at your account, you know, all the normal stuff that you do at the end of the year, you're going to make sure that your accounts receivable schedules are right, that everything you, you just kind of done all your work and you're ready to go. Um, that's pretty much, that's pretty much it. I'd say, you know, there's lots of places that you can look for good kind of like year end. I'll, I'll dig some up and we'll put them in the show notes of, of kind of just general accounting year end tasks that you'll want to think about. But, you know, for nonprofits, it's really thinking about donations, thinking about pledges, thinking about restrictions, um, and getting making sure you're ready for your auditor. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. Welcome to Nonprofit Everything, the podcast where hosts Andy Shurick and Stacy Wedding answer your questions about all things nonprofit. 
So Andy, I'm going to give our listeners sort of a, a peek into our world. So we were sitting here today during this episode as we were recording. And I said to Andy, gosh, how long have we been doing this? Three years? And he's like, no, we've been doing this since May of 2018. That is crazy to me. And I know that like the <laughs> pandemic with this blur of I, I, I have no sense of timing these days. And I think that's forever uh, going to impact me. But wow, it's been a really fun ride, a fun journey. And we just appreciate you for being along as part of that ride. Whether you've been with us since the very beginning, we appreciate and love our loyal listeners. Whether you're new and someone forwarded this, shared this with you and you started listening. Thank you. Like this energizes us and it energizes us the most when we know that we're making a difference or saying something that either breaks up your long work day, makes you laugh, or you go, hey, I learned a thing or two. So thank you for that. And as always, we appreciate your questions. Your questions are what make this podcast run. So nonprofiteverything.com or finding and tracking Andy and I down on any social media, email, text, whatever, whatever way. Uh, probably not snail mail in today's day and age, right? But uh, any of those other communication uh, mechanisms. <laughs> I want someone to send us a regular letter now. I want that. <laughs> hey. That, I don't know where you would send it. That's a challenge, honestly. right? Yeah. Hmm, where would they send that? <laughs> uh, no, that's actually a really interesting question. So anyways, thank you to all of you and uh, hope you enjoy this episode. Our nonprofit is less than a year old and our board recognizes that we need paid staff if we're gonna make any real progress. We don't have enough money to hire an executive director, so we're wondering if we can set it up as more of a sliding scale salary where the person we hire gets paid more based on their performance. As an example, the more money they raise, the higher their salary can go for that month. Is that something we can do? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, I just had a visceral reaction to this one. It's, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's not ethical. It's not right. I mean, you know, you've got the whole AFP code of ethics thing that's about like, oh yeah, the more money you raise, the more your salary goes up. So there's just sort of an ethical integrity thing with this that just really bothers me. At the end of the day, um, you know what? Maybe, maybe you need to work on some other things for your organization uh, first, like, if you can't raise enough money now to to pay someone what they should be paid, uh, you know, then then maybe there's bigger questions to ask. But there's just, it's just uh, you get paid a base salary that is part of the position that you're being hired for, and I mean, I, I guess the only wiggle room, I mean, you could make it a part time to get started if that could, but but like it still should be. This is the set position we're hiring for. This position here's the salary for for a year. And no, you can't hire this person as a contractor. In that doesn't meet those rules either. So I just I just have a lot of <laughs> I just had kind of a, I'm sorry to be so rude about my answer, but I'm just kind of like come on, like no. No, you can't do that. I don't know, Andy. Am I being too hard nosed about this one? No, I want to. I do want to slow down a little bit for for folks that don't know what what Stacy just said. Oh, so, sorry, <laughs> so I, got, that, I got on a roll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So AFP is the Association of Fundraising Professionals, and they have it's a membership organization that's made up of professional fundraisers. Uh, it's a really good organization. If you're a fundraiser, it's something that you should definitely look into joining because it's a good way to meet other people who are doing what you're doing. Um, and you also learn lots of really interesting things like 
there is a, a code of ethics that fundraisers that are members of AFP have agreed to. And one of the things on the code of ethics is that you can't be paid commissions or you can't be paid a sliding scale based on money that you raise. And the reason that they do that is because it changes the relationship between a fundraiser and a donor. It goes from, I would like to tell you all about my organization and how great it is. And I want you to make a charitable donation to my organization and its mission. It changes it from that to, I would like to tell you how great my organization is so that you can pay me money so that I can pay my own bills. Right? So that's a different conversation and it's, it feels unethical because it is unethical. Um, so th that's the reason it's in AFP's code of ethics. That's the reason that no professional fundraiser would ever agree to that. Um, that said, there are a lot of people that do that. There are lots of shady organizations out there that attorneys generals across the United States are chasing to prevent them from doing slimy things. Um, but if you want to be a pro organization and you want to do things right, which I'm sure you do because you're asking us, right? Um, then, then you won't, you won't use that as a solution. Um, there are other solutions. There are other ways that you can do that. Like, so if you don't have, I mean, and th this is the, the sort of question of adolescence that we see over and over again. It is, it's the hardest thing for a nonprofit to do is to go from board operated, board run to staff operated, staff run when the board provides oversight and that's it. It's a really tough transition to make and a very large number of organizations don't actually, don't actually make it past that point. Um, so, so recognize that you're, you're in good company. <laughs> There's lots of organizations that are in the exact same spot that you're in. Um, but the good news is there, that there are ways out of it. And, and the ways are to, you know, the board needs to put a plan in place that says what we want to do is we want to raise enough money to hire someone that can be the executive director. And so what does that mean? How do we do that? And so that could be a fundraising plan. That could be talking to foundations. That could be expanding the board to people with money or means to get that money so that they can raise enough money to get enough runway to get that executive director on board. But you generally want the money to be in place first before you bring that person on. Um, so so coming up with that, what that revenue plan looks like to get there is probably going to be your top priority. And now that I've had a moment to calm down, and thank <laughs> you, Andy, for- You're welcome. For- just making that sound so much better than I did. I just, uh, there's certain things that are hot buttons and uh, obviously that was one, but I know, I mean, I do want to elaborate. I do think that part of the reason the Association of Fundraising Professionals established that code of ethics is there was, there's too much opportunity for donor abuse, like, or for abuse from um, not keeping the donor's interest and their what's in their best interest top of mind. And so um, there's there's too many ways to make it self-centered and about you and to make it for your benefit than it is for the donor, which is ultimately there's also a, a donor bill of rights that you might want to check out on the AFP International website that a lot of local organizations also subscribe to and, 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 you know, put on their websites, because this is really an important part of it. And so if I'm taking, if I'm taking a pause and thinking about this question, I also understand if you are a board that has not worked in the, you know, doesn't know a lot about the nonprofit sector or, you know, you're, you're business people and you're used to a sales-based or commissions-based kind of business, which is very much, um, you know, very, prominent in the business world and in the for-profit world, I could see where this question 
probably felt. See, do you like how I'm backtracking, Andy? But I could see, <laughs> I could see how this question felt, uh, you know, an appropriate one to ask. And it, it's not that it's, it's, I mean, certainly we're glad you asked it. I just think that, um, these are the kinds of things that are important nuances and differences we, we probably should find. I know there's something that exists out there, and if not, we should create it, right? Like, here's some of the key differences between, you know, the for-profit world and the nonprofit world. And even though both are corporate corporations and are considered corporations and nonprofit is, is really just a tax status, at the end of the day, there are some fundamental differences, and this is one of them. And so, there's also a, a TED talk that was done years ago that talks about the way we think about charity is dead wrong. It was Dan Pallada. And if you listen to it, I think it can be really educational and informative, even if you are um, newer to the nonprofit world in a board position to, to really think about it and think about how do we pay people fairly? How do we make sure our expectations are reasonable? It's, it's, much different to fundraise for something that is intangible. It's it's about a feeling and trying to get people connected to a mission or pause, a cause they care about versus a widget that I get to buy and use. And, you know, it, it's just different. And so I think that's my, that kind of the, my frustration comes in is I, I just, I really want people to understand that it is different. And I really want to give the due respect because I have heard way too often these organizations that that hire executive directors, hire fundraisers, and then within, you know, then surprise, um, we only have enough money to pay you for three months. And that's really not putting any of you up. You're not setting anyone else up for success, including yourself. And so you're just going to have frustration and and so are they. So um, was that a good way of uh, correcting my response, Andy? <laughs> or good. softening, softening yeah. it? <laughs> Although now, I, now I'm... Now I'm depressed because I have to to change the days without number of podcasts without mentioning Dan Pilata has to that counter has to go all the way back down to zero now. Oh no. <laughs> I'm sorry. We're working around the clock to put the finishing touches on our year-end fundraising appeal. Then my ED asks me how we ask for specific things while transparently keeping the money in an undesignated fund. She doesn't want restricted funds for a particular program or budget line item. Any thoughts on how to accomplish this? It's a great question, and I know it's one that everyone seems to struggle with. And I will say the more specific you get, the more you really back yourself into that corner, right? So um, I think there's ways that you can, I have seen really good fundraising appeals that do something where it sort of says your, your gift will help, right? X, Y, Z, right? Save, save the homeless dogs, rescue the homeless and abandoned animals and meet other needs that, that the organization has, or that those dogs have or whatever. Like there's this other clause, right? Help with other things of the organization, like that the organization needs. But, um, and, and, there's a question I have with that, though, because, Andy, I'm going to just jump in here and ask you one of the things I, I've heard through the grapevine um, from clients over the years is that they've actually gotten penalized or had problems before because they thought they worded their annual appeal correctly. And the auditor came in and said, like, to to classify it as more unrestricted dollars. And they, the 
auditor came in and said, absolutely not. Like you use these wording, this wording, you kind of, you made this commitment. It is still restricted. I don't know how, where that line is. If that other projects idea I have, or like other, like that broad other clause helps capture that. And I'm just curious to know from your like knowledge of auditors that is much higher than mine. What, what is that line? Do you know? Yeah. So I, I, I have a hard time answering it from the fundraising side because I know there's development folks that have this sort of lockdown and they know exactly what it needs to say. I can answer it from the like dealing with a financial audit okay. side. Definitely. Um, what a And remember, a lot of times the financial auditor that's coming in is not an expert in development. They're not an expert in fundraising. They may not be an expert in nonprofits. They may just be like the auditor you guys get. And so, so sometimes you need to spend time educating them on what they're looking at. So, so it's, you know, there are a couple of rules about working with an auditor, like never give them something that doesn't make sense. <laughs> like never, never give them an, an opening that because the first thing they're going to do is sort of pick at it and see if they can make that opening bigger. Um, so, so that's probably what you would go to for, for something like something like a fundraising appeal that they say like this one was too, this one was too narrow. And we think the money based on the way this is written is going to be restricted. So you can always argue the point, like there's nothing preventing you from saying, well, we said this or, you know, but, but you kind of want to make sure that you've got, you know, sort of pro development help that's telling you how to write those things to begin with. Um, so that you can work with the auditor. The other thing that you need to do sort of on the financial side is, Make sure that you are you're allocating all of the expenses in your nonprofit to all of the different restriction areas so that you can release those restrictions in effective ways. And what that means in English <laughs> is if someone is if, if you're what was your example for you're raising money for Yeah, dogs? yeah. Like right. <laughs> yeah, I, I said like homeless and abandoned dogs, right? Like and, homeless and abandoned dogs. So so when you think about the the expenses that go along with managing homeless and abandoned dogs. It might be, it might be the food that the dogs get. It might be like, what other the direct expenses can you think of that? Like there may be veterinary care for the dogs. Um, that, yeah. So those are like direct expenses that are really, really easy to track right. and really easy to connect to the program. But when you think about like all of the other things that you have to have to make that program work, then you can start adding more things on. Like you probably need electricity for lights yeah. or air conditioning or heating shelter. for the areas yeah, that the dogs yeah. are in. Someone who's maintaining the shelter, the shelter right? Or the, whatever. All yeah. of the people that are involved in, all of the people that are involved in that particular activity, all of the supplies, all of the utilities, the depreciate, get this, the depreciation on the building that you're in can be, allocated to that particular program if it is in use by that program. And so so the the pro thing to do is to look at it from the perspective of are we capturing every single expense that supports this particular initiative? And in that case a lot of times, you know, restrictions can be a problem if you've got if somebody wrote something in a really dumb way or or a, a you know a, a green fundraiser agreed to something crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so so sometimes you can get into trouble with restrictions there. But for the most part, like if unless you're just not paying attention and you're raising a ton of money for something that doesn't cost very much, like making sure that you have those allocations in place, you can release restrictions a lot better than than necessary. And then you don't have to worry about unrestricted quite as much. I mean, you still do. And you know the ideal scenario is to receive 100% unrestricted donations. So that you don't have to mess with it, but but you should be able to manage restricted donations by by allocating all the expenses. 
Um, and then when the auditors come back to you with like, we think this is too tight, you can be like, yeah, you're right. We'll work on it better next time and just like go with it. The other thing I have seen done well on some of these direct appeal and, and end of year appeal letters is that perhaps you're raising, you know, you know, you're saying you're raising money for XYZ project, or you're saying I'm, we're trying to raise $10,000 so it can be matched, whatever that wording is. Um, I've seen wording on the appeal that literally says, and sometimes it's like in a PS at the bottom of the appeal. Actually, no, it's not because those who are really professional at writing end of year appeals know the PS is another call to action, right? But whatever, it's somewhere in there that says, in the case that funds exceed the project described, we will use the money where it is needed most. And like adding that as some sort of a footnote so that maybe it's on that reply envelope or whatever it is, but something where people also know, okay, let's say we blew it out of the water and we raised, I mean, good problem to have way more than what we needed for what we were asking for. Great. We can spend it otherwise and we're not jeopardizing you know, donor trust, we're, we're being transparent about it. And I've never found a donor that sees a clause like that and says, oh, I'm not going to support you because of that. So. I'm a new board member and have heard people talking about shifting our board agenda to a consent agenda. Can you give me an idea of what a consent agenda entails and what the benefits might be? Oh, yes. And yes, yes, yes. Please adopt a consent agenda. It is one of the best tools in my unbiased opinion. Uh, so it really helps. It's a tool that helps streamline your board meetings, uh, focus board discussion on more of those true discussion items that require kind of a meaningful dialogue rather than just reporting out information. So when you think about basic things that happen in any that oftentimes are included in a board packet, right? You've got your meeting minutes. You've got an executive director report. You have sometimes very typical sort of standard financial reports that are just more of a, a check-in on how you're doing, but don't require any discussion. You may have just an update from a prior meeting or kind of a something that you've already discussed that's just a final wrap-up. So these kinds of sometimes routine items, items that are just more uh, procedural, non-controversial topics are great for a consent agenda. And it, it truly means you just kind of look at your agenda and move all of those routine, procedural, kind of self-explanatory items. You move them to the top of the agenda. So that could be a few items. It could be five to seven items, depending on what you cover at your board meeting committee reports that just literally the committee is giving an update. That's another example. So you move these up there because do they really require discussion? If it's just someone reading a report, you don't need to spend your board meeting time on that. Like someone as part of your duty of care, fiduciary duty as a board member, you are obligated and should be reading and preparing for board meetings, right? And so the, the idea behind this is you're doing that anyways. These help eliminate the, you know, people pontificating about something that they've you've already read, which is annoying. And actually leads to decreased board attendance when you ask board members. They're like, well, someone just repeated everything that was I already read. Why should I go to the meeting? So it's that just one-way information exchange. It moves up to the kind of rolls up to the top of the agenda. And your board chair then would, would kind of start off the meeting after the welcome and, uh, you know, welcoming everybody and starting the meeting, then saying, you know, are there a 
basically, do I have a motion to approve actionable items in the consent agenda? Does anyone want to move something from the consent agenda down to the regular agenda? So then that means you basically in one vote could take care of several items that maybe need a vote, or perhaps just you're kind of making making it clear that these items don't require anything else other than just a mention. And if someone says, you know, I saw errors, like, you know, because this is where people's biggest fear is, well, what if I do want to discuss something? Or what if I read something that raised a question? Or what if the minutes had an error in them? Then you just simply say, I'd like to ask that we move such and such item for discussion or to discuss something that needs to be corrected on it down to the full agenda. And so then that just gets moved to your discussion then. But it it can save you at easily 30 minutes of just time that is not the best use of everyone's time using a consent agenda. So do it. There's also some really good in kind of the nonprofit associations out there. And all, there's great samples of, of consent agendas. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. It's not anything. It's not rocket science. There's just literally it's kind of labeled on the top of your agenda, consent agenda. And then like a little note, items that need to be moved down for full discussion or, you know, that you're able to do that. So it's really straightforward and we should be using more tools like this. When people say, why is my board not engaged? The board sometimes is not engaged because they are so damn tired of <laughs> these, these discussions <laughs> that like they don't need to have, right? It's not because your board meetings are so, so boring. boring. So boring. <laughs> so boring. It's so repetitive and you like and the snacks are terrible. <laughs> yeah. I think as a as a staff member, I think one of my favorite parts of a board meeting was when someone would correct something in the minutes because that gave me like the satisfaction that like the the effort that went into creating these dumb things, someone actually read them and thought about them and thought they were important enough to make a correction to them. I always, that always made me so happy. Like, by the way, like on this one thing, I, I remember, I remember Sandy voted no on that. And you're like, yeah, you remember. <laughs> you're like, I, you're like <laughs> I was just testing you to see who like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the I think the only thing that we've heard that what like people didn't like a consent agenda is that, it like can squash dialogue. If you try to like sneak things into the board agenda, into the consent agenda that are supposed to be discussed and you're trying to hide things that way. But just like Stacy, you just said, as, as long, as long as you give people the option to pull something out, if they think it's important, um, just make sure that that's available. And then, yeah, it sounds like a consent agenda is a great idea. And we could do a whole, a whole episode in and of itself of how to jazz up your board meetings. It is I realize that people are like, oh, no, do not make me put another ounce of energy or time into my board meetings, because it is I know when I worked in nonprofit staff, it was like the world came to a stop. I felt like for several days before a board meeting, getting prepared for the board meeting. So any board members listening, just please know <laughs> this is the angst that many staff go through <laughs> getting ready for a board meeting. So like, right. Oh, yeah. It's nuts. Yeah. Oh. And do we still do? Do people still do binders? I like spend hours assembling binders and tabs. I don't tabs know, but that was my day. Like that, that's when I grew up in the sector. And I'll tell you, that was uh, a tedious, administ <laughs> tedious administrative hell is what that was. Sorry. So it was making me think we probably we need like a sound effect or something when we accidentally seed a question that someone needs to ask us. We need to like add a think of a new Ooh. sound effect. So let us know what sound effect you want us to use for that. And we will just drop whenever we hear, like as we're doing the editing, whenever we hear ourselves say something that should be another question, we'll trigger the sound effect. But Ooh. tell us what it should be. 
That is a clever idea. That's that's why I'm here. <laughs> Congratulations, you made it to the end of another episode of Nonprofit Everything. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to the podcast. Thank you for sending in your questions. Thank you for suggesting guest experts. Again, the best way to, the easiest way to do that, I think, is to go to the Nonprofit Everything webpage and click the Ask a Question button, and you can type it in right there. Or you can get to Stacy and I any other way that you can find us. Um, we're everywhere, just like everyone else. Um, so ask us those questions and we will be back in two weeks and answer some more.